Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. Jeff and I are super excited today as we are sitting with Michelle Law, our esteemed guest for today. She is a writer and actor based in Sydney, Australia. She writes for print, theatre and screen. In particular, she wrote the smash hit play Single Asian Female and she is the co-creator, co-writer and co-lead of the SBS series Homecoming Queens. So good to see you, Michelle. How are you today? I'm really well. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to chat to you guys. Same yeah, yeah, same no, yeah. We are super excited for this as well, yeah. So, Michelle, what have you been up to recently? Um, I remember in our messages to one another, you mentioned you were in Deadline City. Can you give us a hint about what that's about? Oh, man, Deadline City. I am a permanent <laughs> resident. Uh, I think it's just part and parcel of being a um, freelancer as well and having to juggle a lot of different projects. But I think when we were emailing, I was sort of juggling several things i was finishing the edits on the rehearsal draft for my new play uh i was also working on a second draft of an episode of tv and uh what else was i doing um i was doing the edits on a book that i've written so i had to send those back to the editor and make sure that Mm. they were readable (laughs) (laughs) um can you tell us about the new play what's the new play about uh, it's called Miss Peony or Peony. I'm not 100% sure on how to pronounce it. It is about Chinese-Australian beauty pageants and um, that the insanity of that world. And mm. it's about find, figuring out your cultural identity and that is done through the protagonist who is a Australian-born Chinese woman who is... Uh, very ashamed of her Chinese heritage and Mm. she then becomes haunted by her grandmother who was a past beauty pageant winner who wants her to reckon with her Asian identity by entering this beauty pageant and winning it. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, I just want to backtrack a little bit. I want to hear more about beauty pageants. Okay. Chinese Australian beauty pageants. Is that a, is that a big thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a big thing in the Chinese community. And um, there actually is one in Australia and it's run by TVB in Hong Kong. And you basically, uh, there are heats in each state or like each capital city. And then they go on to a grand final. I think last year it was in Melbourne, but it's normally like Sydney or Melbourne. And then the winner of the Australian one then goes to compete in Beijing with other it's sort of like Chinese diaspora. Um, mm. And then they battle it out to be like the ultimate Miss Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just really, I was just really interested in, you know, what that actually means, like to be. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, especially considering yeah, that they right. do look at the diaspora community. Um, so it is a magical mm. realist sort of family comedy that's quite mm. supernatural. 
No, I love that. I always... Wow, no, I can't wait. That that sounds super interesting. Yeah, sounds yeah. very unnuanced as well. Yeah. And very, I, I think just like poignant of like the intersecting, I guess, got conflicts that, oh, I guess kind of, um, what's the word? Just like sentiments that I think a lot of like Chinese Australians and the Chinese diaspora would have to grapple with, like certain issues that I think um, would be very poignant to a lot of people. Yeah, I'm hoping yeah. so. I think um, it was really interesting watching audiences who came to my first place single Asian female because they, it was a lot of people who'd never been to theatre before because they didn't really, I think, feel mm. particularly welcome because there were never stories about people like them. And mm. then having... The opportunity for them to bring family members and like parents and grandparents to come see it I was just like oh it's like really struck oh a God. chord um and I and I guess I expected that that in a in theory like in my mind but went just to see it actually happen and physically was really like mind-blowing oh no absolutely I um I was I mean before COVID um when we actually got to go to the theater um I remember a play had come down um like to Melbourne called Saigon and that, like you are so right like theater and the audience for theater isn't typically made up of Asian audiences I think particularly just like the language mm. barrier is hard to kind of pick up on like the nuances um if you're not kind of English like, like a native English speaker um, but this play had both um, Vietnamese and French speaking elements and it was really nice because I actually got to be able to take my mum and my aunties oh, and so nice. that's something mm. that I've never experienced before and it was just so telling of you know I guess like the lack of representation like in you know the, in theatre in particular yeah. um, so I think it's fantastic that like you know you're putting out all these shows that I'm sure will strike a chord with so many like Chinese Australians and just Chinese people in general. Yeah, and just to tag on that, I guess like in a lot of the books and plays and, and shows that you've written, there's, there's this constant theme of Asian leads and Asian-oriented stories. Is, is this a conscious choice on, on your behalf or, or is it something that's just organically happened during like the writing process? Uh, I think it's probably both. Um, mm. I think it started off organic because I started writing professionally when I was about to graduate high school because... Another one of your guests who you'd had on previously who recommended me to be a guest, Alice Pung, she mm. uh, was put this call out for this anthology called Growing Up Asian in Australia. And I was finishing up school and I really mm. wanted to be part of it, but I was really stressed with like end of school exams. And then I thought, oh, I'll just put something together because otherwise I'll regret it. And I was really surprised by how easily it came to me, just sort of writing about my own life and mm. what it meant to be Asian in Australia because it was something that I'd never really been encouraged to write about or something that I tried to avoid because I was like, oh, it's a bit embarrassing to talk about your culture, especially because I grew up in quite, in quite a monocultural like Anglo region in Queensland. Mm. Um, so I think it started off organic. And then when I went to study writing at university, I think that's when I started to repress it or try to stop it in some way because I was studying you know, literary heavyweights that were prescribed to me by my male white lecturers. So I was like, yeah. oh, I'll be a novelist <laughs> and I'll be like a, a Tim Winton or a J.M. Kurtzer or a, I should try to be Helen Garner or something. Um, and sort of denying wanting to talk about my own experiences or wanting to have my own authentic voice because I thought it wouldn't be taken seriously. So I think I yeah repressed it for a while 
and then sort of came out of that and started making a lot more of my own work. And then I think at that point it became more of a conscious act um, because those were the stories I want to tell. I wanted to tell because I noticed there was nothing like it, almost nothing. Like I didn't grow up with hardly any Asian representation on screens or stages or in, in music or magazines or anything like that. Um, and I didn't want that. I didn't want it to be like that for younger people. Um, hmm. So, yeah, after that, I think it's sort of I was more conscious and um, more political about it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really I mean, I, I think it's just telling of like the gap in just like the market of like, you know, we have a lot of, you know, I guess the Australian population, right? Like statistically, you have a lot of like Asian the Asian diaspora but like you don't see that level of representation on our screens in our books um you know on in theater so I think what you're doing really does contribute to the makeup and like I guess like the richness and diversity Mm. of um Australia um I think something that we've heard a lot from from our guests and and just um Asian Asian celebrities or or people of of note around the world is is the exact journey that you've had where a lot of the time you ignore what's right in front of you and that is who you are the culture you've come from your experiences and you always try and look far and wide and, and just on a personal note just in i love to cook and i've always when i was younger i was i say when i'm younger i'm only 24 <laughs> but it was like during the high school years it was like very much obsessed with like italian and french and like learning all these like european cuisines because that in my mind was what was the thing to strive for like these skills were what um i really wanted to obtain but i think as, as you grow older you really just turn to the things that make you a bit happier and bring you a bit more comfort and that's just what mum makes what grandma makes and you know you were saying wouldn't like um you don't want other people to feel that way and i think you know if we produce enough of this material and write the books and the tv shows and you know whatever else sort of media that people consume then the next generation can grow up with this material and then it's just pride from start to finish in their lives it's there's no none of this gap Mm. um during those sort of adolescent maybe early adult years and yeah i love the subtle things you drop like the the restaurant and single asian females called the golden phoenix like it's like like every asian like chinese restaurant ever has got like phoenix or dragon or or like palace or something in that and and also you know stuff like that i I think is just really it speaks to a lot of people who are come from that background and it kind of resonates with them even if it's like a smaller detail so yeah love that Mm, yeah i mean just like holistically though how do you think like the landscape and appetite for asian oriented media in australia in particular like do you think that's changed over the last decade um and in particular like have you noticed any significant changes in you know the quality and demand for stories centered around those in the asian community um i think there's always been an appetite for it i think the landscape probably in the last decade has been interesting because it's been shifting towards trying to serve that appetite where whereas I think before there wasn't even a concerted effort and you know I think part of that is people absolutely genuinely wanting to create more equity like racial equity on screens and on stages and what have you but I think also a large part of it is people being scared that they'll be cancelled or like they're trying to be politically correct Mm. and like you know either way as long as we're getting more representation out there like I think um 
they both serve the same common goal, I suppose. But the tricky thing is that you, no matter what your intention is, you have to do it correctly and you have to do it authentically in a way that Mm. you're getting those practitioners to actually engage as opposed to just like a white person taking an Asian story and just like hijacking Mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think the danger of like, you know, this conversation and representation is that, you know, at what point does it become tokenistic? At what point is it just like a superficial blanket, tick the box? Yeah, we've got like Asian faces on screen, like hooray representation, right? Well, yeah, I think that's still a really big problem. Um, And it depends on what sector that you're working in. I think, um, for instance, I think theatre's definitely progressed in a big way, especially in like the last five, seven years. Mm. But I think sectors like the screen Mm. industry are still barely behind. And it's really interesting because, you know, you Mm. see shows that might have like a person of colour in the lead role, but then you look at who's actually made it and the writers in the room and they're all white. (laughs) Mm. And it's sort of like, I'd sort of prefer if you yeah. just wrote a white show <laughs> like, because mm. I don't, yeah. it's, yeah, sure. that's, there's a lot of really interesting um, complex conversations about colorblind casting and, and how a lot of it is you're essentially erasing the cultural identity of that character while essentially just using their face <laughs> um, and there's no real depth to it. Yeah. Um, so mm. I think the quality is getting better, but it could always be better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's your process like? Like, do you, like, I assume, like, do you have, like, a huge part in, I guess, like, recruitment? And I guess, you know, like, what, what's your, like, kind of thought process when you do have, like, a certain play? Um, are you consciously, you know, um, implementing a quota or are you making sure that, yeah, like, I, I guess I'm curious to hear kind of, like, what your thought process is to kind of ensure, um the equity I guess in theatre yeah I mean I guess my process when it comes to just behind the scenes is I I try to make sure as much cast and creatives involved are people of colour or people who share the experience at least of the characters that I've written and the world that I've created Mm. Um, and sometimes that is out of your control to a certain extent depending on what company you're working with Um, but you can also, you have a bit of leverage as the playwright to um, ask for certain things or, or know that, you know, this character demands this life experience. Mm. Um, and when it comes to the actual writing of things, I try to really foreground the experiences of Asian peoples whose stories haven't been seen in mainstream culture before, um, as well as foregrounding other people of colour who might not be Asian and if that's the case, doing as much research and um, interviews and consultancy with people from those backgrounds as as much as you can Um, and always being open to learning and knowing that you're going to screw up um, and owning that and that being part of the process as well so you can keep becoming a better creative and um, a better student, I guess. Yeah, I think that's something that I have, I've really like realized lately. It's that that representation needs to be there from end to end. It's it's not just who you're seeing on screen. It has to be the people who create it and the intent behind why they've created that product. And I think I've been pretty guilty of just, oh, here's a show. 
very diverse cast yeah. and then don't really look further into it and you, you go to the back and you see like the director and the writers are, are all white so i think that's a that's a big thing to for people to start looking into um if you do really want to support tv shows and media that is actually created by a diverse cast like on that topic of demand do you think there is that fear that because people are wanting shows and you know movies like Crazy Rich Asians and Minari and, and Parasite have sort of lit this fuse and people want all this Asian-made media. Do you think there is this risk that large companies with lots of resources are just going to pump all this money into creating sort of Asian-focused media? Um, and yeah, having that sort of spread without people understanding the source material or who's behind it. Like, I think these aren't media examples, but like recently there was the Dalgona coffee thing where a woman, like a white woman claimed to have created the the, the drink that was popularizing in Korea or that oh, whole God. incident where it was like, we're, we're going to, we're going to modernize Mahjong and, you know, make it stylistic and all that sort of stuff. Like, do you, do you think this is a, a potential risk? I guess um, I'm a little less worried because it's already happening. <laughs> I mean, it's been, <laughs> Yeah, and it, and oh, that's so sad. Yeah, I, yeah, I think with the explosion of Asian American cinema, especially in Hollywood, it's been interesting because you know films like Parasite, that director's just he's huge in Korea and he's just known. And winning an Oscar wasn't really a thing for him because he he said that the the he mm. said when he won that the Oscars are very local. And so he's, which is true, it's super LA specific because Korea has this massive film industry, just like the Indian film industry and like the Chinese film industry. So it's not Mm. even on their radar, which I find really interesting. And so I think um, also potentially with the anti-Asian racism that's happening in America, there has been a spotlight on Asian stories in the uh, American Chinese sort of diaspora or American Korean or American Filipino, like it's mm. it's exploded in that sense. But in terms of, you know, things like cultural appropriation, it's just been there for so long that we're not even conscious of it anymore. And, you know, the mahjong example mm. and, and the, the drink example, that's just, it feels like it's been around for so many decades and, you know, appropriation of like, Japanese culture when it came to, um, you know, Madonna (laughs) appropriating Japanese culture in her film clips or Gwen Stefani wearing bindis Mm. and appropriating Indian culture when she was in No Mm. Doubt. You know, it's people, it's very easy for white people to take Asian cultures and see them as quite exotic and sexy and interesting, but they're very good at picking and choosing what they can be racist about, which, um, yeah, is something that really yeah. bumps yeah. for me. Yeah. But I mean, like, at least what's happening now is people are calling it out a bit more. I think um, with the Dalgona coffee thing, as, as soon as that thing came out, it was it was all over, you know, like social media literally tore them apart. It was like, this isn't yours. And now they've updated the websites. It's a completely different thing. Obviously, their intention, I feel, is still there. They're trying to take this product um, and just market it to probably a predominantly white audience. But um, I think at least there is this, like people are cognizant about this fact and they are looking into it. And if someone is like appropriating a culture that's not theirs, at least people are there to try and stop it. I, th- I think that's a positive change over the last couple of years. That's true. But I, what annoys me though, is that like, I often find that the 
what white people who do appropriate offer the same like piss weak apology like oh yeah oh, it's all the same it's cookie i'm cutter. so sorry it's i didn't mean cutter. to offend yeah. like i will learn i'll be yeah. better and i don't know like it just keeps happening right yeah. like do they do they learn like do they get better it's just oh god it's, it's exhausting i'd yeah. like to yeah. think so <laughs> i'd like to i mean i'm eternal i'm an eternal optimist i think if i wasn't i wouldn't be in the arts <laughs> but um yeah it 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 is pretty depressing when you see the same mistakes being made by the same people and they're not actually making a concerted effort to grow it's more just lip service yeah yeah for sure like a you know a screenshot apology on notes and like that's enough you know wait what do you what a screenshot of an apology yeah it's a big thing thing with celebs like have you seen have you seen like people just like writing apology on notes yeah 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 yeah. and i think um a lot of people that's enough during the whole (gasps) thing did that but i I guess just to move on a little bit like what are your thoughts and and opinions of the future of asian-made media we sort of talked about the last couple years where do you sort of see it going in the next five to ten years? Uh, again, I think it's, it's dependent on what sector you're working in. Um, mm. I guess my main focus, because I feel like the theatre world in Australia, even within the last five years, there's been organisations like Contemporary Asian Australian Performance, which like they've super changed the scene. And there's just this proliferation of new Asian Australian works that you see on stages and that's happened even within the last five years. I think film is still lagging behind and there's still at least like East Asians specifically like that bamboo ceiling that we're still trying to break through. Um, I think as well, I do worry about anti-Asian racism in Australia mm. and also Australia's very fraught relationship with China. Oh, God. Yeah. And, and how that affects um, media portrayals of Asian people. Um, so I think a lot of it does come down to people mm. in positions of power and gatekeepers and who are the decision makers uh, because you can, you can have a bunch of Asian creatives creating new stories, but, you know, who are the people giving them notes and who's greenlighting their projects and um, essentially mm. who's giving them feedback and it sort of just feels a bit icky when you're telling an Asian story and the person that you're reporting to is a white person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess just on that, because you were talking about bamboo ceiling and, and you know, during your during your creative process, you want to have that representation of people who can connect with the stories. Is the talent there? It's just not being hired and cast? Like, yeah, it's it, for it, sure it, there. It there. It's more community? just laziness on, on yeah. you know, production companies, casting directors, parts, producers. They mm. say that the talent is in there, but they just don't, want to put in the time and effort to look for it i mean just even examples yeah. of like my brother's show the family law like when they made that they were like oh this is going to be such a massive feat to find a cast and assemble an entire family and a lot of these actors are going to be unknowns and yada 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 and it ended up coming together so beautifully and all of those people were out there they just needed to be given an opportunity no absolutely um one thing i would love to say is more sort of asian australian youtubers like mm. i can't really name too many like at the moment like, like i feel america really dominates the scene like people like mike chan um are like massive wong and fu. Doing, doing a lot of work yeah wong fu mm. the, fun, <laughs> the fun bros and they've all sort of ventured out into other things i've heard like, oh, um, i bet he does the guy from wong <laughs> like opened a restaurant now he does like snacks 
it's just like stuff like that i think is like yeah stuff like that is just like <laughs> super awesome and and i'd love to see more australians on youtube because i think it's it's a really good way to connect to a, a younger audience and, and to tell stories in a way that's like approachable uh i, I guess like the only one i can think about is like chani <laughs> like did you ever watch did you ever watch my chani oh my god my chani yeah yeah and i remember when he had his abc show he did have an abc but, show yes yeah i remember that there was there's a couple of people like nat tran who was really really big oh, um nat tran, yeah big. she's australian oh, she was such a stalwart going she up. was huge her. and um my friend my white friend because she's a massive like youtube youtuber she's like have you heard of two set and oh i, I love two set i oh my god i felt so stupid because i'd never heard of I them i actually don't know them because i'm not like so a huge good. youtube person they're oh super god. famous Hi. they've got they're like so famous a mil like two million subscribers or something i think they just hit three um i'm a oh bit of a god. fan so i follow <laughs> uh, but isabel they're essentially like a duo i think they're brisbane based yeah, they're from oh. Queensland. And I was like, holy shit, these guys are amazing. They're from Queensland. Yeah, yeah. And so they're like classically trained musicians and they were like, we want to make classic cool music content, but make it a bit funner. So they do like challenges and they do all this like fun stuff and they're both like amazing. Yeah, yeah, reacts and stuff. They're both like amazing players. Oh, no, no, I 100% know who you're talking about. I remember I saw a video of them reacting yeah. to like WAP. Yes. <laughs> And they're both super funny and they have they real, like their funny. editing is really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love them. Oh, I forgot about them. So, okay, no, we're doing, we're doing, right. <laughs> we're doing all right. We're doing all right. We're doing all right. Speaking of WAP though, just a different side note. Has anyone seen that dude that sings Cantonese? Songs? I literally <laughs> just put it in my stories this morning. <laughs> it's killing me. He is incredible. His delivery is so deadpan. Wait, 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 wait. And I'm like wait, loving give it. Give me like a two second pitch. Who is this person? <laughs> he's essentially like a, i think he's on tiktok and he just has this obviously this is a podcast so no one can see what i look like but he has this like pose in front of a camera where he holds the mic like this and he's just like reciting really popular songs but in cantonese and it's all like literal translation oh, so it's, it's hilarious <laughs> ooh, ooh. i'll send it to you after i said it's great it's really funny i just saw it today and i was like this is the best thing i've <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm curious though, Michelle. Like, I what do you consume? Like, you know, in particular, just about like you know, Asian media, like in Asian Australian media. Do you have any recommendations for us and our listeners about you know more content that we can consume? Oh gosh, um, there's so much stuff out there. I mean, in terms of Australian TV, anything that Nikki Aiken and Corey Chen and um, Matilla Gupta put together is just mm. gold. Um, mm. And they work across all the all different networks. Um, so it's pretty easy to find their work now. Um, Australian stages, there's just so many people out there. There's like too many to name now. It's just getting so incredible. Yeah, it's um, such a good problem. problem. To have. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I love acting. Asian Australian actors like Catherine Van Davies and Michelle M. Davidson, who's also on Play School. So people, people's kids are probably more familiar with her as well. Um, a lot of cool um, Asian Australian directors like Courtney Stewart and Ken Morolita, uh, Undy Lee. There's a lot of um, awesome mid to mid career to like established 
Asian Australians in the theatre world. Um, in terms of writers, of course, I love Alice. <laughs> oh my God, we love her too. We yeah, were I, on um, the show before, and she's just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, Alice is amazing because she was sort of a mentor figure for me when I was growing up, and now we're actually proper mates. So that's oh. really special. Yeah, and you know, and, you know, I heard of um, Benjamin Law, so he's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> No, no relation. relation, just same, just same surname. If anyone else thinks otherwise, pretty racist. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's really good to hear. Uh, no, I think um, yeah, media is one of those really strong influences on on de- like identity development, and I think it's this widespread form of validation of experiences. Almost like when people share their stories, it's just a it's just a great way of saying, hey, this happened to me. And when people consume, it's like, oh yeah happened to me as well and i think everyone likes to be validated in all those ways so honestly the more there is the better um and i'm yeah it sounds like there is a lot boiling and under the work so i'm super excited to, for what's yeah to to it's honest. um it's really exciting and people in a lot of um i suppose more powerful roles as well like at screen australia you've got a lot of um, asian mm. australians working there um donna chang who's a producer has just started at SBS at the start of this year. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. I think it's mm. going to, it'll take time to see, see like the the fruit of all all of our labor, but, you know, mm. the seeds are there. The seeds are there for sure. I mean, are, are there any other projects that you're currently working on beyond those that you've already spoken about? Um, yeah, there's a couple of TV shows that I'm working on, um, some that I'm developing just that are my own and some that are other people's because I work as a writer for hire as well. Uh, there's um, the book that I was working on that should be out later this year. Um, and that's sort of a life guide, but with a travel twist. So it's, it's um, which is mm. ironic considering the world that we're living in. <laughs> um, but it's part of a series of travel books that'll be out that this my book will be out um, later in the year. Oh, and yeah, a, a couple of plays that I've had in development at different theatre companies that will um, potentially get programmed soon and randomly an opera. An opera? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's in development with Opera Queensland and La Boite Theatre in Queensland. Um, and it's about a anti-Chinese race riot that happened in Brisbane in 1888 Mm. because people are really familiar with other riots like the Lambing Flat riots um, and uh, no one really knows this history and um, a lot of the streets where this riot took place, you know, the sites still exist but there's no real acknowledgement that it ever happened or any real awareness of it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's awesome. Why an opera? Um... I love that. I love I mean, why not? (laughs) No, I I really love I really love musical theatre and I wasn't too familiar with the operatic world. I'd seen a couple of operas in my time, but um I always saw it as quite elitist and sort of like a white man's domain. Oh, so true. Mm. And even like portrayals of like Asian figures in opera are yeah. all deeply racist. Yeah. You know, like Madame a Butterfly. It's so bad. It's yeah. so bad. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we I the composer who I'm working with, 
he had an idea about wanting to make something about the gold rush uh, in Australia. And Mm. he approached me, this was like five, six years ago now. Um, That's sort of generally how long these things can take. And he, um, he and I just started working together. And then I stumbled across this race riot that happened and we did a lot more research on it. Um, so it's, we've had several workshopping, uh, we've had several developments where we've workshopped the story with, with singers. Um, Mm. and yeah, it's hopefully getting, um, to a more programmable stage in the near future. Oh, that's super exciting. Any, um, any Beijing opera? Oh, not in this show, but maybe the next one. (laughs) (laughs) the next one i always yeah i always loved watching it whenever whenever i went back to china i would always watch it with my grandpa and it was just like yeah the the mask change was what got me all the time so cool have not still don't know how they do it no i I can't say the same for vietnamese opera it's i find it very difficult to watch (laughs) (laughs) and listen to actually um but you know people have their particular taste (laughs) you're really selling it as well (laughs) actually have have you ever heard vietnamese opera no Definitely I'm check it actually. out. It's a an acquired taste for sure. <laughs> but no, yeah, very talented um, people who do we'll it. We'll trade. We'll trade legs. <laughs> yeah. We'll trade legs. I'll, I'll show you. Yeah, I can say something similar about Beijing Opera sometimes. <laughs> oh my goodness, amazing. Um, but just to transition a little bit, um, I'm keen to kind of hear about, you know, your relationship with your brother, Benjamin Law. Um, I mean, what was your childhood like? And I, I just, I guess, you know, having siblings in the, this industry i'm curious to hear you know what have been the main similarities and differences in the creative process and how you both work yeah ben and i are super close um so our parents split up when i was really young so i don't ever remember them being together and from there we there's five of us and we sort of split between living with mum and dad and so my brother ben and i stayed mm. with uh our mum and so and he was always sort of like the primary sort of male figure in my life and like big role model in terms of my interests because we had we were both creative Mm. and we had um really similar interests and and goals I think um so we're we're super close and we always have been um and you know to the point where like (laughs) he was my I was allowed to bring like two people to my formal so I had my my mom and then Ben came as well (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so um, it's really that. great because most of my siblings are still in Brisbane, but Ben and I are both in Sydney, so we sort of try and catch up as much as we can and just like, I don't know, play Switch or go to the beach or something. Mm. Um, yeah, so love that. in terms of working together in the same industry, like in it more than anything it's been a real blessing because I think it's really rare to have someone that you can like wholeheartedly trust who's working in the same field as you and so especially in an industry that's quite political and quite fickle in a lot of ways like to have someone who who's always got your back no matter what um from both sides is is super I feel really grateful for um in terms of similarities we're, we're both really, really hardworking and we, we really put in the hours. And I think we're both um, perfectionists in a lot of ways and we don't like to settle for less. It's probably just being Asian as well, <laughs> to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I feel that. I feel uh, that. in terms of the differences, probably um, the fact that we have both, we both have pretty different 
identities and like the fact that he's a guy and I'm a woman like I think you encounter different forms of discrimination um depending on gender and sexuality as well because he's gay and I'm straight um so I think Mm. those are sort of key differences and how we've been able to navigate the industry embodying those identities um what are other things we did write a comedy book together and that was a lot of fun and the process for that was really seamless because we just had a pretty straightforward process and like a shorthand that siblings have i will say that he Mm. types incredibly Mm. loudly and i find that really irritating (laughs) and like he (laughs) Does he have one of those like keyboards? No, the, the clicky ones. He like, just has yeah, his. Like, he's gamers? just got like his the oh, keyboard okay. on his laptop, his MacBook, and like another keyboard that is Bluetooth. Yep. But he also only types with two fingers, and so Ooh. there are certain letters on oh. his keyboard that have completely been wiped away from just uh, friction. <laughs> Two fi- oh, I used to do. Yeah. I used to do one finger as a kid. It's really, it's really that. interesting because oh, no. he types really fast. <laughs> but I think that's impressive. yeah, he types really oh, fast. Okay. If he can't touch type, and he still types fast. Well, he can touch type. I think it's just that he just uses the two fingers. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Like, spatial awareness. But I'm always looking at his like, keyboard, oh, and yeah, I'm like, okay. your E is it's missing. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yeah. I mean, sorry, just to circle back though on um, your point about how poli- um, how political the industry gets. Um, are you able to touch on that? And, and, and I guess, you know, I'm curious to hear about any anecdotes you feel comfortable sharing. Like, have you been put in positions where you've, you know, you've had to call out people or you have to like leave situations and leave projects? I don't know, like what's the extent of which, um, or I guess like what is the nature of like, how the situations kind of evolve oh gosh i mean where to begin (laughs) i'm yeah it's it's tricky when you're in a working environment and you know i've had instances where i've been offered jobs that i've had to turn down because i'm like i just don't agree with what you're trying to do um and i don't know why you're the person Mm. running this particular show and so i'm not um i don't feel comfortable doing it so there's you know definitely lost work and then you have other people who take up that work. And I totally respect that because, like, you need to pay your bills and, and all of that. It's it's also, like, making a living. Um, and then there have been instances where I've called out um, quite prominent institutions and then had other people of colour take me down <laughs> um, who, Aww. yeah, who um, were also in the industry but very, very established and um, quite powerful now, but I think there was a massive generational gap and misunderstanding because largely the younger generation of like millennials and Gen Zs were, um, we were all banded together. And um, I think it's uh, the older generation especially, and this is just a generalization, but um, you know, they've gotten to this position of power where they're not really engaged with current discourses about um, yeah. about race and even, like, terminology that we find quite commonplace. Like, if you're talking about Australia being a white supremacy or the fact that we're living in white supremacist social structures, like, for them, 
that is a really dirty word. It's basically saying like someone's the KKK mm. or they said the N word or um, someone's uh, it, it it evokes you know Nazism, mm. but that's not what it means technically. <laughs> um, but you know they get to a point where they don't feel they're not really engaging with the way that things are rapidly changing. Do you think that's largely because, you know, having ascended to a position of power, like their kind of proximity to that whiteness kind of, um, not, not, how do I put this correctly? Like, have they almost forgotten what it's like? Well, I think, that makes sense. I think, I think they look at us and think that things are fixed because they sacrifice so much to fix it. Yeah. And so if someone right. younger in the community speaks out about how they're struggling, it sort of feels to them like we're shitting on their legacy. And it's uh, like, uh, yeah, okay. but it's sort of mm. like, of course we respect everything you've done. Like, you know, we wouldn't be able to be making like podcasts and, and, and shows and books and all of that without the work you've done. It's just that sadly the work yeah. isn't finished. Yeah. Mm. Like it just, it's it becomes more insidious or like it just shifts in a way that we don't we can't um that we don't expect uh so yeah i think there's a for sure a disconnect um and i think you know when you've worked so hard and you've sacrificed and lost so much after working within like a white supremacist framework all your life and then you've ascended to that position it's sort of like you have a lot to lose. Mm. Um, So it's a lot more terrifying. Whereas I think a lot of younger people who are our age and younger, they're really politicized and they're sort of, they're really unafraid to speak their mind and call things out because they're like, well, if I don't say something, nothing's going to change. And it's much more, I feel like a collective amongst the younger generations. It's like, we're fighting for each other and for the greater good. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm. Or that's that's what I feel like has changed. That's a, that's a really interesting point because I feel like when we're 40, 50 and, you know, potentially in these new positions, like is that just a mindset that comes with essentially like territory? Like do you, like obviously right now, like the, the time has changed and we're young and, you know, as you were saying, like people aren't afraid to take risks. But do you think... I actually, I actually don't know the answer to this. Like, I like to think that we retain this sort of, not rebellion, but this open-mindedness to, to speak what you think. But when you're, when you've got a lot to lose, like, does this mindset just fade away? I don't, I actually don't know. I hope not. Mm. I mean, if that, I think it's really easy for power to corrupt people or like power to, um, it is, yeah, the fear of something that you'll lose. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I'm like, if that, if I ever get to that point, I was telling a friend of mine, just like, shoot me into the sun. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I'll just not be in the industry. I'm a, I'll probably just like become a vet or something. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like, a bad backup I'm, lad. It's not a bad backup Yeah, lad. like, I'm totally fine with it. Like, you know, I'm, there, there are other things besides work that you can Mm. be passionate about and be part of your identity. Um, And I think if you have like a strong support network and people you can trust, you sort of, 
you sort of you know what matters and what doesn't yeah yeah i mean i i think that's just kind of like you know your points um michelle on you know this kind of gap between the younger generation and the older generation um i think it's poignant because i think often we kind of clump people of color together as this almost monolith and you kind of had this assumption that like oh of course all people of color are gonna want the right thing for all of us um when in reality there's a lot more nuance than that um and i think being cognizant of that is really important totally. um, so you don't just become complacent and you're just like oh because i'm a person of color like i can do no wrong almost you know yeah, totally. There's so much um, hierarchy and so much intercultural oh, yeah. racism. Um, and it's, yeah, it's why the term BIPOC mm. is so problematic because you can't just lump together everyone yeah. who no, is No, literally, white though. Mm. It's like, some... yeah, it's like you're defined <laughs> yeah. by your non-whiteness. Like, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Totally. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, it's there is a lot of um, complexity and... Um, yeah, again, a lot of racism in between different um, minority groups. And it's just, uh, there's no real way forward than, you know, being open to learning and admitting your mistakes and just keeping an open mind and open heart to conversations and just wanting to, like, move forward together as best you can. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's um, it's a great note to sort of round out the conversation we've had about um, Australian media and obviously all the work you've done, Michelle. And I, one last question for you and something that we've been trying to do a bit more of um, when we've got a guest on the show is who is the one person you'd like to see on this podcast? Obviously, like, ideally a real person, but you know, if it's if it's a fictional person, that's fine too. We'd love to, we'd love to, you know, we'll, we'll work around it. Maybe, maybe we can find the person that played them, but... Um, someone I thought of, I would love to see Leah Jing McIntosh on oh. your podcast. She started um, Liminal oh. Magazine. She's yes. based in Melbourne. Yes. Yep. And she's really amazing. She's done such incredible work and grown Liminal into this huge platform in the space of, I don't know, a handful of years. And she's just created a really beautiful community and um, created a lot of connections for people in the Asian Australian community. And um, I think she's got her head screwed on right. And um, she's just an awesome person. Oh, noted. Will do. Love it. <laughs> I love Liminal. Yeah, no, I remember Liminal being, because when we first started this podcast, we were, you know, we were doing research and we were like, what is out there? And Liminal was like one of the very first things we picked up on. And yeah doing fantastic things for the community so would we would also love to have her on the show as well so maybe stay tuned thank you so much for coming on michelle it's been an absolute delight to have you on and it's been such an interesting conversation for both jeff and i and i assume our listeners as well 100 yay thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure and i have all the time in the world for asian australian content and people <laughs> likewise likewise i love it Thanks so much, Michelle. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, show us a bit of love by clicking the subscribe or follow button. I would really appreciate that. Otherwise, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Bye.